Welcome to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. In chapter 55 of Isaiah, verse 11, God tells the prophet, So will my word be which goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Standing on this promise, T.D. Stubblefield Ministries is committed to sharing biblical principles with individuals, families, churches, communities, and our world, believing that only the Word of God can advance us in God's perfect plan for our lives, where we can experience liberating faith, lasting hope, and unconditional love in a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Dr. T.D. Stubblefield with today's Advancing Word. As we reflected upon this particular day, this particular day in the chronology of the Christian calendar, Palm Sunday marks the triumphal entry of the Lord into Jerusalem. And we want to go to a text that accentuates that moment, that accentuates that event in the life of our Lord, in the life and heart of the disciples of that day, and search the scriptures in terms of the implications for us right here, right now. In the 19th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, let us turn. The 19th chapter of the gospel according to Luke, beginning at verse 36, reading down through verse 40. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Pray, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. I want to preach today from this text. And the subject I want to lift up is the story in the stones. This passage has timeless relevance and significance to the priority, the province, the propriety, the primacy of praise in the church. Praise is what we do. This is a passage that reminds us that praise is primary in our relationship to the Lord. And so at those seasons when I have reached this passage, I have always found myself taunted and teased and tantalized by the prospects of what would have happened if the rocks would have cried out. In this case, of course, the rocks were preempted. The stones were preempted from praising. But a thinking person, a reflective person, would have to ask the question, what would the rocks have said? What would the stones have said if they had opportunity to cry out? I mean, it's it's explicit and it's implicit in this text that had not the multitudes praised God on this particular occasion, had not they opened their mouths and their hearts and praised God on this occasion, 
the stones, the very stones would have erupted in praise. And because praise would have been their business, I believe it's safe to assume that in that context, the rock would have been brother or sister stone a rock. And so this morning, I thought that we would rock the house. I thought we would rock the house and, and have a conversation with Brother Rock. I want you to know that I am on solid biblical and theological grounds here to suggest that in this text there is an attestation, there is a validation that there is potential and propensity for praise in the natural order. I'm not stretching the truth. I'm not coming up with something here out of left field theologically. There is plenty of truth and there's plenty of biblical grounding to point toward the propensity, the potential, the possibility for the natural order to give praise to God. Uh, I don't have time to do an exhaustive analysis, but just let me share some notable scriptures with you. First of all, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 19 and 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth forth his handiwork, Psalm 19 and 1. And then the prophets of old. You cannot read the prophets of old in their rebuke of Israel and Judah and not see those many occasions when they in their effort to give stinging reprisal and admonition to the nation, they would call heaven and earth as witnessing to their preaching. Listen to Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 23. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and hath glorified himself in Israel. And then we have in that wonderful doctrinal treatise of Paul, that profound verse in chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, the invisible things of him are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made. And then before he gets to, for we know that all things work together for good, for those who love the Lord, seven verses back. In Romans 8, 21, he says, For we know that the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain, waiting for the Redeemer to come back. So I believe I'm on solid ground when I suggest we can have a conversation with Brother Rock. And so when I began to go down this track and trail, I said to myself, is there some clue in the Gospel of Luke about the story in the stones? Is there something that will inform us, will remind us of what possibly and potentially the stones would have said if they were put in and placed in a position 
where they had to praise the Lord. And you know what I discovered? That there are three instances in the Gospel of Luke where we find stones, plural. Now, there are a number of instances where a stone is singular. Sometimes it's the noun. Sometimes it's the verb. But there's only three instances where we find stones, plural. And I latched on to those passages, one of which we have read already, which is our text today. But let me share the other one because I believe it gives us a clue to the praise that would erupt in the story of the stones. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, we have before us the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is admonishing the children of Israel to repent and bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. And then he condemns them, he admonishes them for their perilous preoccupation with pedigree. You read it in Luke 3 and 8, and he says that God is able to raise up of these stones children of Israel. And so the first instance, I believe, if the stones could tell that story today, is that we ought to praise God like they would for his creative power. He says in the text, Luke writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God is able to take stones and raise up children to his name. The rocks would praise God. The stones would praise him because in his presence, they recognize their creator. They would bow in obedience to their creator and in recognition that he is able. And my brothers and sisters, we can learn from them this week because we ought to praise God because we believe he's able. And when we read the Gospel of Luke, we find God's ability, God's power expressed both in creation and in redemption. In creation, we see his active power but in redemption, we see his passive power because he laid down his life. No one, no one took his life from him, but he laid it down that he might pick it up again. Now, this is an important point for us to understand because this is the place where the Jews experienced significant disruption because as they had celebrated over the years God's creative power, they had totally misinterpreted and misrepresented his redeeming and atoning power. So many of the Jews, as they were under subjugation and oppression in the Roman Empire, they were looking for a conqueror. They were looking for someone who would come riding on a white stallion, someone with sword and shield who would be able to put to flight the legions of Rome. But see why this is so important in our text. Jesus does not ride into Jerusalem on a stallion. 
He rides in on a lowly ass, a donkey, because he's signifying that his power at this point will not be expressed in terms of active power as it was in creation, but in the passive power of a servant who will go to Calvary and lay down his life for the sins of the world. If the stones could tell that story, they would praise God for his creative power. For they recognize his power not only in creation, but as he rode into Jerusalem on this foal, this coat of an ass, as he rode in, they recognized his power for redemption. When I looked at that, I saw the first thing that might give a hint as to what they would do if their praise had not been preempted. But in our text, we see them praising God if they had the possibility of doing so for his compelling person. This text infers that only the praise of the multitude preempted the stones from crying out. Oh, when I get to heaven and I've been there a few thousand years, I'm going to ask the Lord, what would those stones have done if when he rode in to Jerusalem, nobody said a word? I wonder sometimes what it would be like up in here if there were some stones because we get awful quiet. And the Lord's telling us in his word, we can sit down if we want to. We can take a vacation if we want to. We can come in here tired if we want to. But he's going to make sure, even if he have to, the inanimate objects will begin to praise his holy name. And I love reading Eugene Peterson. He helps me so much in so many places. He writes about prayer and praise being answering speech, that our praise and our praying is not an initiating speech. It's answering speech. It's responding speech. It borders on rude and at worst arrogance when someone speaks to you and you don't speak back. See, it'll take a whole lot of pressure off of your prayer life a whole lot of pressure off of your worship life if you realize God has already taken the first step. When you woke up this morning, when you woke up this morning, God was speaking. When you were sleeping last night, God was speaking. When you drove to church this morning, God was speaking. Prayer is answering speech. These rocks, these stones were capable of answering speech because God had already spoken. And were they put in a place to do so, they would have responded in light of the presence of his compelling person because the Messiah has moved on the scene and we are at this point at the apex of history. Oh yes, this, this is the climax of human history. 
Everything in human history leads up to this point and everything else leads down from this point. This is the climax of human history when the sun shows up beginning his march into his death, his suffering, his dying for us. It's the apex. And were they forced to do so, the rocks would have cried out. One reason, and it's implicit in the text, there had to be some folk there who knew about his compelling person. Perhaps the woman with the issue of blood I know Mary Martha was there in Lazarus because Jesus had raised him or resuscitated him from the dead. Maybe somebody who was in that crowd who saw Jesus take a young boy's lunch, feed 5,000 men, not counting women or children. Maybe the widow of Nain stopped by and she saw Jesus riding in and she erupted in praise. I'm telling you, if you boycott God with your praise, there'll be somebody who will stand up and praise him anyhow. I'm telling you, he's been too good. He's been too good. I don't need a rock today to cry for me. But in the final instance, lest I keep you too long, as my mind began to wonder about this text, They also, if they had not been preempted, they would have praised God for his consummate pardon. You see the praise inferred in Luke 3 and 8 because he said, I can raise up of these stones, children of Abraham, God. If it does not exist, he can create it. If it's dead, he can raise it. In Luke 19 and 40, the compelling person of the Lord elicits praise from those who've truly been swiped. But in Luke 21 and 5, which is the final occurrence of stones in the plural, it only occurs three times now. In the Gospel of Luke, I believe we have a clue as to why these stones would erupted in praise. When I began to dig deeper, I thought perhaps stones and rocks was interchangeable. And so in this text, in Luke chapter 21 and 5, there is this acclaim and applause for the goodly stones that adorns the temple. And if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that Jesus said that There will not be one stone left unturned because what Jesus was doing was prophesying the ultimate destruction of the temple. When you read the Gospels, in the first part of the Gospels, we have a missing star. That star is the one that the wise men saw in Luke and they saw his star in the east. And they followed it from afar. What has happened in Israel's life at a time when Jesus has come is that he's come to his own and his own has received him not. Israel with all of her offerings, with all of her ritual, with all of her ceremony, she has missed the star. 
But when we get to the end of the Gospels, we don't have so much as a missing star. We have a missing stone. Because as ornate and as beautiful and as prolific as the temple was, it was missing a stone. You know why I know that? Because Isaiah says it. And Luke quotes it over in chapter 20. Said the stone which the Lord has provided, the builders have rejected it. He's the chief cornerstone. He's a rock of ages. The temple was beautiful, but they had not appropriated the cornerstone. But look in the text. The very next thing Jesus does after he rides in triumphantly on a colt, on a foal, on a donkey, is that he cleanses the temple. He says, my father's house is a house of prayer and you made it a den of thieves. It's not this building that gives God glory. It's when we recognize he's the chief cornerstone. He is the lily of the valley. Oh, I wish I had a contractor here to come up and talk to you about how important a cornerstone is. It defines the building. It provides a precision for the lining up of the other stone. And Jesus, he is the chief cornerstone. And so they would praise him if these rocks could cry out for his consummate pardon. Because the pardon consummately was no longer in the physical temple, but in the one who said, if you tear this temple down, I will build it up in three days. They were so locked in to time and space. They thought it was the physical temple. They said it was 46 years in building, but he said, you tear it down in three days. I will pick it up. And so the rocks knew where the pardon came from. It didn't come from the temple. It didn't come from the burnt offering. It came from Jesus. I wanted to ask Brother Rock to tell us something. And I just imagine in my mind this morning that Brother Rock showed up and I was going to interview him in the presence of you all. And I did that in my mind early this morning. I want to share with you the results of the interview. Brother Rock, what can you tell us about Jesus? Brother Rock said, I was there when he stepped out on the midst of a primeval chaos when the son of the mornings cried out. I was there when he said, let that be. And everything that is stepped out into existence. Tell me some more, Brother Rock. He said, I was there when Jacob slept. If you read the text, he slept on a rock for a pillar. And when he slept on a rock, he saw angels coming down a ladder whose top was in heaven, whose foot was on earth. Brother Rock, tell me something else. He says, I was there at Meribah when Moses took his rod and he hit the rock. Yes, it did. And when he hit the rock, it's uncomprehensible. But water came out 
of the rock. Brother Rock, uh, talk to me this morning. I was there when Israel walked across Jordan and they picked up 12 rocks, uh, picked up 12 stones as a reminder that I'm able, uh, that I'm able uh, to make a way uh, out of no way. Uh, Brother Rock, uh, tell me something else. Uh, I was up on Mount Carmel when Elijah tore down uh, the altar of Baal and Asherah, and he built a new altar, and fire came down. Brother Rock, uh, tell me something today. Uh, Brother Rock, uh, I was there as a stone cut out of the mountain when Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, uh, and I was the rock uh, that tore down the golden image. Now, Brother Rock, uh, I can't stay in the Old Testament uh, too long. Uh, I need you to help me uh, in the New Testament. He said, uh, I was at uh, Caesarea Philippi when the Lord said, upon this rock, uh, upon this rock, uh, upon this rock, uh, I do have a witness. Uh, he says, I was there after they stretched him wide, dropped him low, and they put him, put the rock in a rock and a rock in front of the rock and the rock in the rock with the rock in front of the rock early 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 Sunday morning early my faith is in the rock that was in the rock with the rock in front of it and that early Sunday morning the rock got up the rock got up, and because he got up, I don't need no rock. I don't need no stone. Is there anybody here? Anybody here? You have been listening to Advancing Word with Dr. T.D. Stubblefield. We pray that you have been encouraged with what your ears have heard and your hearts have felt. Explore our website at tdstubblefield.org for more information about us and to obtain resources provided by T.D. Stubblefield Ministries. Until next time, be blessed and remember to stop stressing and start stepping, advancing in faith, hope, and love by reading and applying the Word of God so you can stand on certain truth for uncertain times.